This morning we're going to launch into a new book study together as a church family that I've been wanting to teach ever since I came here. Because the truths that we're about to look at have currently done the most to date to transform and influence how I view the Christian life and my own daily walk with God. See, what we have ahead of us as a church is a foundational study that really shows us step by step what it looks like to live in this world for the glory of God, which is the reason why we are saved. It is for God's glory and exaltation. And and what's both exhilarating and challenging is what we're about to study as a faith family over the next several months is not exceptional Christianity or extraordinary Christianity. What we're about to study is essential Christianity. Or as C.S. Lewis put it, mere Christianity. Christianity 101. And I planned this to be our next focus as a church even before I started here because it develops and it builds upon what we've already seen and learned. If you recall, the very first study that we engaged in as a church when I first arrived here was what is the gospel and how to respond to it. Why did I choose that? It's because there is nothing more important than knowing the good news of Jesus Christ and responding to it rightly for the glory of God. It's the very foundation upon which everything else in our life is built. It must be built on an understanding of the gospel, to believe it, to be baptized, to be added to a local church, and to be devoted. These are the foundational ways that we respond to the gospel for the glory of God. We never, ever, ever move past this in the Christian life. The second study we engaged in is Christ above all from the book of Colossians. Why did I choose that? It's because there is nothing and there is no one more important in this entire universe than Jesus Christ. And there is nothing more important than understanding and living rightly in relationship to Him. We must exalt Him above all for He is the preeminent one. We never move past this in the Christian life either. The third study we engaged in was the Holy Spirit. Why did I choose that? It's because everything that we will ever do for the glory of Jesus in this life is done by the Spirit's power working in us. If we are to exalt Jesus Christ above all, then we must realize that it will not be done in our own efforts. It will be done by the power of the Spirit living in us to live a life that exalts Christ above all. Walking in the Spirit, we never move past this in the Christian life. So having systematically laid down those three foundation stones of responding to the gospel, exalting Christ, and relying on the Holy Spirit, we are now ready to begin looking at the basic structure that should be built on those foundation stones. We're now ready to study Christianity 101, a basic outline regarding how to live in this world for the glory of God. And this basic study of the Christian life that we'll be launching into today will be traveling through the New Testament letter of 1 Peter. So if you have your Bibles with you today, and I hope you do, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 2 this morning. And as you're turning there, to introduce to you the subject of this book, I want to start us off at a very foundational, basic understanding, and want you to consider briefly, how hard was it for you to get to church this morning? Was it a battle? Sometimes it can feel like it. Sometimes it's a battle against exhaustion after a week of full of work or a Saturday full of activities or an evening full of insomniatic kids. Sometimes it's a battle against your boss to come to church on Sunday. 
who's pressuring you to work on the weekends to the neglect of worship. Sometimes it's a battle against your body where you have aches and pains and weaknesses that make it hard for you to get up and to just get around. And sometimes it's, frankly, a battle against your own sinful desires. Where you wake up on Sunday morning, your body's actually in a comfortable position. Pillow feels so good. And your kids are sleeping in for the very first time this week, which always happens on Sunday, wouldn't you know it? And your to-do list is totally open. And getting yourself out of bed, dressed, fed, out the door, not to mention doing the same for your spouse or your kids, feels like a battle of monumental proportions sometimes. And you think to yourself in those moments, man, following Jesus is hard. How am I supposed to do this? So that's what some of us may have faced today as we woke up this morning. Across the ocean, a British believer's already woken up and gone to church. How hard was it for him to get to church this morning? Well, he likely faced everything that you faced, except with a few added pressures of an increasingly hostile British culture. On his way to church, this believer might have thought, I wonder if my pastor will be preaching today, or was he arrested because he was street preaching earlier this week? Then as a government employee, he worries about whether he's going to get fired for sharing that verse on social media. After all, his boss has already warned him not to share his faith as a Christian while at work. Then as he pulls up the church, since he's in Britain, where the average evangelical church is only around 60 people, this British believer wonders whether anyone even remotely close to his family's age will be at church today. After all, he does invite his co-workers to church, but everyone he invites laughs him off to go drink the weekend away. His family will probably be the only complete family unit at church, just like it's been for the last six months. That's what he faced as a British believer. Then flying across the other ocean to the other side of the globe, an Asian believer is just a few short hours from waking up. How hard is it going to be for him to get to church today? Quite a bit more. His church was blown up just past Sunday. His government's more concerned about placating the religious majority in the Muslim community than protecting the minority Christians. As such, they're meeting in an underground church in some location. He hopes he can find the location and then get to that location without being tracked, which could be difficult because, this, because uh, after witnessing to a co-worker last month, his apartment was shot up in the middle of the night and his four-year-old son died in his arms. And just last week, about an hour ago, another underground church was shot up and half the 30 or so people there died. This is a true story, by the way. Is this going to happen to him today? Or will he simply be able to worship the Lord with other believers in peace? That's what he's going to face. Whether it's America, England, or Asia, it may look different depending on where we live, and it may help us to keep perspective as Americans. But the reality is, no matter where we live in this world today, following Jesus is never going to be easy. It's always going to be hard. And it's going to get harder. Even for us, by the way, we've seen this abundantly demonstrated as American Christians over the last two years, where politicians, academia, and the media have openly discussed how Christians are outright dangerous to America's health, government, and society. And that is not an overstatement when I say that that's been what's communicated. Government, health, and medical agencies wrote numerous articles over the last two years about how Christians are dangerous to America's health. 
As one article published in the National Library of Medicine on May 19, 2020 stated, quote, the evangelical community is putting countless numbers of people at risk by refusing to stop holding large church gatherings and refusing to cease its decades-long attack on science, unquote, and instead holding to this unhealthy idea that, quote, Jesus will return to earth. So Christians are labeled as dangerous to health. Second, Christians are increasingly being labeled as dangerous to the government in America. In a recent article published on May 29th of this year, the Associated Press warns of the dangers of Christian nationalism, which they define shockingly broad as those who are aligned with, listen to this, quote, conservative Christian political agendas that include opposition to abortion, same-sex marriage, and transgender rights, and, unquote, and the belief that America, quote, will receive divine blessing or judgment depending on its obedience, unquote. Do you know what they just did? They just equated every single person who believes in historic Orthodox Christian values as extreme Christian nationalists that are a threat to the government. And then the article quotes this, quote, white Christian nationalism is really the threat. Conservative Christian themes playing a role in local elections, unquote. So Christians are increasingly viewed as dangerous to health, dangerous to government. And then lastly, Christians are labeled increasingly dangerous to society. Before it got canceled due to the pandemic, Harvard University was planning in in June of 2020 to host a conference to discuss the supposed dangers of homeschooling and how to regulate it. Now, what is it about homeschooling that was deemed so dangerous? Not the mode of teaching, but because parents hold, quote, near absolute parental power over their children, unquote. And 90% of these homeschooling parents are, quote, driven by conservative Christian beliefs. Now, despite the fact that those statistics were completely made up, as 90% of all statistics are, did you get the point? What was the danger and threat that Harvard perceived to American society? Conservative Christian beliefs. And so we need to separate parents, their argument was, from their children in order to protect them from those harmful beliefs that parents are passing on to their kids. See, increasingly, even in America, Christians are being viewed as dangerous. This is why I say that no matter where we as believers live, following Jesus is never going to be easy, and there's all, it's always going to be hard, and it's going to get harder. So the question is, how do we, as the people of God, make sense of this hostility that we sometimes feel in our, in, our, in our classrooms or in our workplaces or sometimes even in our own homes, certainly in society as a larger whole? How do we make sense of this hostility, navigate it, and how do we live in light of it for the glory of God? Because that's what we're called to do. And that's what this letter of 1 Peter is all about, the book that we're going to be exploring over the next few months. And I think establishing a firm understanding and grasp of this book will be of great importance and benefit not only to us now, but especially in the coming months and years for us as believers and us as a church. This morning we're going to simply lay down the groundwork for this study by just looking at the letter's introduction here in the first two verses. And this introduction that the Apostle Peter gives us is broken up into three basic points. We'll be introduced first to the apostolic author there at the beginning of verse 1. Then we're going to consider the alienated audience there at the end of verse 1 into the beginning of verse 2. And then finally we'll consider the affectionate address given to that audience by Peter located there at the end of verse 2. What we need to live 
in this world for the glory of God. And so we have the apostolic author, the alienated audience, and the affectionate address introducing us to our new course of study today, Christianity 101. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. The Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words to us today. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the Word of God who turns and is gracious in all His ways to those who love His name. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for the opportunity we have to study Your Word today. We thank you for the truths, the rich feast of truth that is ahead of us. And Father, as my heart is full of truths to share, help me to know which ones to share. And Father, watch over the words of my mouth. And I pray that you would accompany the preaching of your word today with power and conviction and encouragement to your people and to those who might be here who do not know Christ. Father, I pray that you would do your work in our midst today, for we are your people living in this world. Give us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here at the beginning of this letter, we are introduced first to the apostolic author. That's at the beginning of verse 1 where Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So here with just the very first word, we're told who the writer of this letter is. It's Peter. It's not just any Peter, it is Peter, that infamous apostle of Jesus Christ. And remembering who is writing this letter to us is going to be immensely important in the weeks and months to come because, as we'll see soon, everything that is written in this letter comes right out of Peter's own personal experiences. Peter was always someone who wore his heart on his sleeve. And we're going to see that in this letter as Peter speaks directly from the heart about issues that he himself had to wrestle with and lessons that he himself had to learn. Now just as a refresher, here are some important things to keep in mind when we talk about Peter that can kind of set the stage for the rest of this book. Peter grew up as a fisherman in northern Galilee. That was a rough career that was often occupied by rough men. Men who, because of their demanding jobs, often didn't have much time left in the day for spiritual learning. And so when Jesus called Peter to follow him there on the shores of Galilee, Peter was an infant spiritually. He knew little more than that Jesus was a man of God, that he was a sinner, and it would be better if they never met again, because in Peter's mind, the closer that he drew near to God, uh, or to a man of God, the closer he was to judgment. Thus began a three and a half year journey where Jesus taught Peter about a little thing called grace. God giving you what you don't deserve. This is seen in Peter's successes and it's seen in Peter's failures all throughout the Gospels, both of which Peter experienced like none other. 
Peter stands apart from all the other apostles when you study him in the Gospels because of his breathtaking successes and his equally breathtaking failures. Peter was the guy who walked on water, but then he was also the guy that nearly drowned after taking his eyes off of Christ. Peter was the one who spoke the very words of God, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter was the one who immediately spoke afterwards the very words of Satan, suffer and die, far be it from you, Lord, that this should ever happen to you. Peter was the one who showed stunning courage, Lord, I am with you to imprisonment and death, attacking a whole contingent of soldiers single-handedly with a sword. Peter was also the one who showed stunning cowardice, Jesus, I never knew him, denying him to a servant girl. Throughout the Gospels, though Peter's name meant rock, his actions were very far from it. And yet Peter came to know, truly know, God's grace in Christ. By God's grace, though Peter's faith faltered, it never failed. And though through his trials he was singed, he came out on the other side, if you study the Gospel accounts, singing, For the Christ that he denied, here's the good news, did not stay dead. He arose. And Peter discovered through Christ's subsequent restoration that there is life after death, there is joy after sorrow, there is forgiveness after our failures, and there is a purpose for every pain we ever go through in life. Peter needed to learn that so that he could write this letter of 1 Peter. Peter learned about God's grace that though we hold imperfectly on to Jesus, Jesus holds perfectly on to us. Through every trial, every hardship, every pain, and every failure, Christ will always, always, always hold us fast. Peter was a man who knew about God's grace and God's purpose in every trial. And therefore, Peter was uniquely suited among all the apostles to impart the wisdom and instruction that are contained in these letters before, in this letter before us today. We'll see soon that Peter's audience was undergoing some intense trials as a result of their commitment to Christ. We'll see soon that as new believers, they were losing their homes, they were losing their jobs, they were losing relationships, and some of them would soon be losing even their own lives. These were suffering people. And Peter's audience was wondering, why? Why is this? Why is following Jesus so hard sometimes? Is there something that I'm doing wrong? Why is this happening? What should I do about this? Peter was uniquely equipped by God to help them and to teach these suffering believers the truths that they needed to ground their lives on. And I can't help but think that when Peter wrote those words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, it was with both a sense of humility and pride. Humility when he considered himself Peter, but pride when he considered Jesus, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To think that he... He should be appointed as a representative and a messenger of Jesus Christ to the churches. was a wonder that never escaped Peter as long as he lived, I'm sure. He was chosen by grace, redeemed by grace, preserved by grace, restored by grace, and appointed by grace to be an ambassador and an apostle for Jesus Christ. And so 30 years after he was first called by Jesus on the, on the seashore, Peter writes these words likely from Rome. He says, Peter, an apostle, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, who does he write these words to? That brings us next to the alienated audience. We've seen the apostolic author. Now let's consider the alienated audience at the end of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2. Peter says to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, 
in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. This is who Peter is writing to in this letter. He is writing to, as he calls them here, elect exiles, which is another way of saying that Peter was writing to believers, believers that were suffering. Now, I should acknowledge that perhaps in some of your translations, the words elect or chosen might not appear here at the beginning of verse 1 before the word exiles, but rather at the end of verse 1 as the beginning phrase of what follows in verse 2. And so you might be wondering this morning, why is there a difference? Well, the difference arises from a decision that the translators had to make when they came to this passage. See, in the Greek, the word elect is found right where we find it here in the ESV, right before the word exiles. The only problem is when you see the word elect show up in the New Testament, it almost always refers to the issue of salvation. So the translators, in trying to translate the Greek order of words into a, into a way that makes sense to us, uh, had to make a choice. Do we leave the word elect where it is, defining exiles, or do we move it and place it next to the phrase that we think it's qualifying regarding the issues of salvation? The ESV translators decided to leave it right where it is, and I am so glad they did, because it allows for two nuances that are present in the Greek to shine forth for us to see, even in our English translations. When we read this, in the order as it's originally written, we're forced to ask ourselves, ourselves these questions. Are these believers elect in terms of their salvation, or are they elect in terms of their suffering? To put it another way, were they chosen by God to salvation, or were they chosen by God to suffer? And the answer is yes, all the above. The God who is sovereign over our salvation is also sovereign over our suffering. And that is Peter's whole point for writing this letter. And he's going to show this truth over and over again. And so he introduces this truth right here at the very beginning. We as believers, if we're to understand and navigate life rightly for the glory of God, we've got to understand something about who we are. About who we are. That we are not only elect, but we are also exiles. And those are going to be the two ways, the two subpoints by which we are introduced to Peter's audience. Peter is writing this letter to those who are elect, and he's writing these letters to those who are elect exiles. And it's interesting. The very first thing that Peter wants to remind his audience about in the midst of their suffering is that they are elect. That they are elect. That is chosen, holy, set apart. Though they as followers of Jesus Christ were being rejected by the world, Peter wants to remind them and us that we are chosen by God. We are elect. And here Peter shows us in this letter that we as believers are elect in three ways. We are elect in identity. We are elect in increasing actuality. And we are elect in accordance to God's will. So first, I want you to see here that we are elect in our identity. That's what Peter says. He says, to those who are what? Elect. All of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ for our salvation and have found forgiveness in Him, we are elect. That is, we find ourselves in this blessed state of salvation, not ultimately because of anything that we have done, but ultimately because of what God has done for us. As Ephesians 1.4 teaches, God chose us. In Him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless 
before Him. See, God chose us in Christ. We are elect, chosen. We stand before God in Christ as elect, as chosen, as set apart by God for salvation. And that's not a label to shrink from, by the way, but that's a label to rejoice in. In fact, God labels us in Scripture as the elect, as the chosen, far more than He ever labels us as believers. See, God calls us believers seven times in the pages of Scripture, as I can find it, but He calls us the elect, the chosen, 18 times. In other words, when it comes to looking back at the moment of our salvation, Scripture wants our thoughts directed not towards ourselves or anything that we did, but towards God and what He did for us. Jesus articulated this proper God-centered emphasis in John 15, 16 when He said, You did not choose Me, I chose you. That's the perspective all of us are to have towards our salvation. Why? Because this gospel that we preach and that we believe is a gospel for the glory of God alone. We, as Christians, believing is what we do, but being chosen is who we are. And in the midst of their suffering, Peter wanted them to remember, though the world has rejected you, believer, don't forget, God has chosen you. You are elect. You say, well, how did Peter know that those he was writing to were actually the elect? How did he actually know that they were chosen by God? Well, it's going to come out later, but the only way you ever know that anyone is chosen by God is that you believe. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 4, where he says, that we know this, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. How do we know this? Verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. In other words, we know that you were chosen by God because you believed. You responded in faith to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That's how Peter knew that he was writing to the elect. Because he was writing to those who believed and who kept on believing, even in the midst of trials. So Peter begins by reminding his audience that was struggling with hostility and rejection. Believer, never forget. God has chosen you. You are elect in your identity. Second, Peter shows us in his letter that as Christians we are elect not only in our identity, but also in increasing actuality. As the redeemed people of God, we are becoming increasingly set apart, holy, chosen, in God's sight, in actuality. That's what that word elect means, eklektos. It means to be chosen out of, made holy, or set apart by God. And Peter in this letter will show us that these Christians were not only holy and elect in their identity, they were increasingly holy and elect in their conduct as well, in their actuality. For example, over in chapter 2, verse 9 of this letter, Paul calls his audience a holy nation who by their honorable conduct among the Gentiles will cause evildoers to glorify God in the day of visitation. And then in chapter 1, verse 14, just later on in the same chapter, Peter says, as obedient children, that's your identity, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So they're a holy nation that's being called on to be holy. They were holy. They're called to be holy. As Christians, we're elect not only in our identity, but we are becoming increasingly elect, increasingly holy in actuality. In other words, God has chosen you, and God is changing you. That's what we need to remember in the midst of a hostile world. We are elect in our identity. We are elect in increasing actuality. And then finally, we are elect 
in accordance with God's will. Peter says to those who are elect, how? He defines it in verse 2, according to the knowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Here Peter tells us that we as believers are elect and chosen by God first, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Right? This is the basis for God's choosing us, in other words. He chose us because He foreknew us. Now some people have taken that word foreknowledge to mean foresight. And they teach that God stared down through the corridors of time. He saw who would believe in Him and who wouldn't, and therefore made His choice based off of that. Those who would believe, God chose. Those who wouldn't believe, God didn't choose. And so they'd say that the basis of God's choice for us was actually God's was actually our choice for Him. Now there's several reasons why that's wrong, but the primary reason why that view is wrong is because that's not what the word means. Foreknowledge does not mean foresight. The word foreknowledge is prognosis in the Greek, and it means forethought or foreordination. It doesn't mean to see something in advance. What it means is to plan something in advance. And we know that's how, what it means because that's exactly how the Apostle Peter uses it later in this passage. Look down into verse 20 of chapter 1. Verse 20 of chapter 1, Peter writes this, He that is Christ, he says, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So that's the exact same word. So does it mean foresight there in verse 20? Did God look down through the corridors of time and say, Oh, that's what Jesus is going to do someday. I guess I'll work that into my plan. Is that how it worked? No. When it says that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, it means that he was planned from the before, before the foundation of the world. He was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, as Revelation 13.8 says. So foreknowledge is not tied to foresight, it's tied to foreplanning. We see this again over in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. There Peter is speaking again, our author, and he says this, This Jesus who is delivered up according to, listen to this, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So foreknowledge is not tied to foresight, it's tied to foreplanning. And this is thrilling to think about when when you realize that it's applied to you as a believer. Beloved, if you're here this morning with a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, if you have found forgiveness and redemption and new life in His name, it is not because God saw that you would have one, it's because God planned for you to have one. As James 1.18 says, of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. You are saved this morning by God's sovereign, unmerited grace because He planned to bestow it upon you in Christ before the ages began, not because of our works, as 2 Timothy 1.9 says, but because of His own purpose and grace. You're chosen, you're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, according to the plan of God. You have nothing to boast in. Your salvation is all of God. He says next how we're saved in accordance to God's will. Second, you are saved, Peter says, in in the sanctification of the Spirit. In other words, you're chosen not only according to the plan of God, you are saved in the sanctification of the Spirit. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are enrolled, you could say, in the Spirit's classroom, which is titled Sanctification 101, right? He has begun a work in you the moment you trust in Jesus Christ. Sanctification means to be set apart or made holy. 
And the moment the Holy Spirit takes up residence within you, He begins to do His sanctifying work. Romans 6.22 says, Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. In other words, everyone whom God saves, listen to this, God sanctifies. He makes holy. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 beautifully describes this sanctification when Paul writes there, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, Paul says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So according to God's plan, the moment the Holy Spirit takes up residence within you, He begins to do His sanctifying work. So we who have trusted in Jesus Christ for our salvation, we are elect according to the knowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. And finally, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. So this is the purpose, this is the reason for our salvation. God saved us first so that we would be sprinkled with Christ's blood. So that our sins would be forgiven. That we might enter into a new relationship with Him by faith. Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins. The wages of sin is death. He took those wages on our behalf. And when we trust in Him, we enter into a new relationship with God. God saved us so we would be sprinkled with Christ's blood. Second, God saved us so that having entered into a new relationship with Him by faith, we would then live the rest of our lives in obedience to Jesus Christ to the praise of His glory. For obedience to Jesus Christ. Just as Romans 1.5 says, to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of His name among all nations. So we have been chosen for salvation for the glory of God alone. So that's the very first thing that Peter wants to teach us here in this letter. That we are elect. We are elect in our identity. We are elect in increasing actuality. And we are elect in accordance to the plan of God. That is deep, deep stuff in just the first two verses. (laughs) Next week we'll have to look at the second nuance that as followers of Christ, we're not only elect but we are elect exiles. But as I conclude here, I just want you to consider this morning that, think about this for a moment. These are the truths that Peter immediately wanted those suffering believers to be reminded of in the midst of all their struggles and hardships. These are the truths he turns them to. He wanted them to remember who they were in God's eyes in the midst of the hostility around them. He wanted them to remember that they were elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God's behind them in the sanctification of the Spirit. God is with them for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. God's ahead of them, right? I don't know about you, but that is some deep, deep theology. And I think that's fascinating. Because I keep on hearing Christians 
say things today like, you know, when people are struggling, just don't say anything. I mean, if you mean in the heat of the moment when everything's just hitting on them like a 10-ton brick, I hardly agree. Just weep with those who weep. Be there for them as a brother and sister in Christ. But if you mean never share God's word with those who are struggling because you're always concerned about whether they'll take it in the right way or not, I heartily disagree with you. I don't know about you, but when I go through hard times, that is when I need to hear the truths of God's word the most. I remember when our daughter passed away, I asked one of my best friends at, our, at, our funeral to, at, at her funeral to remind me of what I already know. I knew it, but I needed to hear it again from someone else. And the family and friends that Char and I gathered around us during the months that followed were those who not only wept with us, but also loved us enough to speak the truth in love as well. Who not only wept with us, but shared with us God's word. When two of my best friends lost their daughter, I came to just sit with them at the hospital until the wife asked me, what does God say about this? I knew that she already knew the answer, but she wanted to hear it again from me. That's what Peter does here. Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knows that is what we need in the midst of hardship and suffering. In the midst of pain, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of hardship, we need our hearts and minds drawn to eternal, unchanging realities. See, contrary to popular belief, theology, like talking about election and sanctification and all these huge words we looked at this morning, theology is not impractical. That's Peter's main point as he reads this letter, as he writes this letter. Theology is not impractical. Theology is intensely practical, especially for those who are going through trials because when everything else is getting thrown out the window... And it seems like the earth under you is coming undone. What is the one thing that keeps you grounded? It is the person and the promises of an unchanging God. And that's where Peter wanted to direct these suffering believers' attention towards here in this letter. Theology is practical, especially for those who are going through trials. It's those who are living their best life now that don't care about what the Bible has to say. But it's those who are struggling that need to know what God has spoken. It's why we do what we do as a church. It's why we teach through the Bible the way that we do, word by word, phrase by phrase. That's sometimes why we only cover a verse and a half like we did today. It's because we recognize that all Scripture is breathed out by God and it alone provides the strength and stability that we are going to need as God's people to navigate life to the glory of God in an increasingly hostile and ever-changing world. So Peter writes to these believers, remember who you are. The world might be throwing upon you a lot of labels, but remember in God's eyes you are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. In the midst of this hostile world, look up and remember God has chosen you. And in that, you can rejoice. In the midst of exile, you are elect. We'll have to look at the next nuance of these verses in truth next week, but for now, this is the Word of God from 1 Peter 1, 1 1-2. 
which I now commit to your further study and faithful obedience until our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ returns. To that end, as the men come forward for communion today, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that that it is a lamp to our feet and it is a light to our path. In the midst of struggles and hardships, even when we are dealing with pain and we don't know how to navigate life, we seem to be blinded by the chaos around us, your word shows us the foundation that lies beneath us. And it is you. It has always been you. It has always been your purposes and your promises and your person. You are our strength and our salvation. And if we stand, if we believe, if we continue, it is only by your grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Father, as we go into this next week, help us not to be blown about by the various doctrines and ideas and philosophies and articles and news headlines help us to stand firm in the knowledge of who we are in Christ chosen by you from before the foundation of the world and in light of that father help us to live out that chosen calling in the midst of the hostile world in which we live. Give us grace, Father, to live as elect exiles. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.